Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. Today's conversation features John Flanagan, founder and CEO of Wilder Hotels. On today's conversation, Jake and John discuss his career in hospitality, becoming a GM at just 26 years old, how the boutique hotel landscape has changed over the years, where people mess up in executing on a soft-branded hotel, they walk through the process for concepting a new build, how John sources deals, how he capitalizes and manages properties all over the country, the characteristics of a strong general manager, and deep diving into the key components of a great F&B concept. Please enjoy this conversation with John Flanagan. John, I thought a really good place to start would be to talk about your journey as a hotelier, because I think a lot of people who start in hospitality, everyone wants to one day own their own hotel. I mean, maybe there's a few people that don't, but most people that go through the struggle, the pain, the happiness of hospitality eventually want to own their own hotel. And you have done that from basically rising through the ranks. So maybe you could share your story with us as an opener to the conversation today. Sure. Yeah. I started out as a dishwasher when I was 15 years old at a pizzeria and worked my way up to be a waiter at a country club and thought I wanted to be a chef. And I went to culinary school and graduated and figured out that a chef life was going to be probably a difficult one. And I have so much respect for them, but I decided I want to be more of a businessman. And then I got into Penn State Hotel School and I graduated there. And uh, during that time, I did an internship for the Renaissance Grand Beach Resort in St. Thomas at the time which was a great property in the United States Virgin Islands and really saw how a big resort worked. And there was a great management team there and an incredible general manager there. And he was this like dashing, smart, intelligent, you know, man that I was like, I want to be that guy. And he was like European and also down to earth and a great leader. And He was running this large, you know, very sophisticated resort business. And yeah, so I, I, it was, I was, you know, kind of love at first sight that I wanted to be a hotelier. And, and then I went out of Penn State. I was started with in 1996 Wyndham Hotels, which was kind of an offshoot of Marriott at the time. And a lot of Marriott leadership guys like Les Bentley and Dave Johnson, like legends in the business were growing this fast, you know, company. And it was actually a very exciting time and pretty entrepreneurial. 
back in Wyndham Hotels. And then they did a lot of mergers and acquisitions and it grew and grew. And, and I did everything. I became a salesperson. I did food and beverage. I, I worked my way up and became a hotel manager within four years at Wyndham through a management and development program and learned, you know, everything from P&L responsibility and how to hire people and how to train and how to look at group business and revenue management. And it was, it was, it was a really incredible experience that gave me a lot of confidence. And I'd say my biggest break was I met Henry Callen through friends I was networking with who owned, who was opening the Hotel Giraffe and Park and 26th Street. And he was opening the Library Hotel and he had the Elysee Hotel and he had the Casablanca. And it was right, it was 2000 and he hired me as general manager in April of 2000. And, you know, W Hotels was just getting started. The only true boutique hotel was down the street. Ian Schrager had opened up the Morgan's Hotel. So we opened Hotel Giraffe, which was brand new construction. I became general manager, which was a huge break at 26 years old. And he literally gave me the keys to the property and said, you know, figure it out. And he was a great mentor and super entrepreneurial. He didn't, he didn't know how to open and turn on a computer, but he called 15 times a day to be like, what's happening? What are we doing? Are we selling out? What are we doing? How's the customers? Is the Bellman in place? You know, have you inspected the rooms for today? How do they look? Is the fresh, are the flowers fresh? And, and, you know, the vibe at, you know, cleanliness and just friendliness. And he, so I just, I just learned through both corporate and, and gentlemen like Henry Callen. And I was the GM there for three years and went through peak New York kind of rev par times. And then we went through 9-11. I was there in 9-11 when the planes hit. And, and then we went through how, how to live in New York and have to cut staff and like, but hold on to staff and figure out how to run in some really very scary times in New York City. And then New York came back and left on very good terms to go open up the Roger for a, a private equity firm, which acquired the Roger on Madison and 31st. So I went from a 72-room hotel to a 200-room hotel. And it was a union hotel, which is my first union hotel job, which was really interesting. We did a big reposition there. As, so I did new construction, and then I learned how to reposition a hotel from kind of like a two-and-a-half-star to a three-and-a-half, four-star hotel. And we learned how to like, we were very strong kind of asset managers. And so we really learned how to, we took a hotel that was doing $9 million in revenue to $20 million in revenue and $10 million in EBITDA. And so we, we, we created a tremendous amount of value there and ended up trading the hotel to LaSalle to a REIT. And, and then we actually retained management. And we started, you know, never done third-party management before. It always worked for owners. And then we took on another deal with LaSalle, which is now Pebblebrook, but in San Francisco. So I learned how to do an acquisition. In between there, I left that private equity firm to for less than a year to go open the ACE on Broadway and 29th. And I met Alex Calderwood and you know, when the four ACE partners were together back in the day with GFI, and this is with Andrew Zobler, who, um, this is pre-Sidel when he was with GFI. You know, you had designers like Roman and Williams, you had Ken Friedman, you had this like incredible group of talent that was coming to its own. And that project really made a lot of people's careers, you know, and got exposed to another new development, super entrepreneurial, got it ready to open. And then 
the private equity firm JRK asked me to come back as president to run the company. I did that and took over six hotels. And we went on to acquire and sell big assets, uh, a Sheraton in Nashville. I renovated Oceana Santa Monica, Oceana Santa Barbara, re-renovated the Roger for LaSalle, acquired the Villa Florence in San Francisco. So really learned you know, a lot from REITs and private equity on, on the acquisition side, the underwriting side, we were underwriting a lot of deals. So, uh, you know, I came up from a pretty hardcore operations, hotel management, and then really learned, you know, how to capitalize deals, how to analyze deals. I was going to Alice every year. I was going to the shows. I was talking to brokers. So, you know, that led me, you know, I had a really good run there and I was there for six years as president and then decided that I wanted to, you know, kind of branch out and went and worked for um, Brad Corzin and Brian DeLow at Proper Hotels and started as chief operating officer, kind of ground up pre any proper hotel being opened. Took on, you know, management of Avalon Beverly Hills, Avalon Palm Springs and started working on the development pieces for them. And that was a really incredible experience working with those guys. I think they're geniuses. And yeah, and then from there, after about a year and a half, really decided that I wanted to go on my own. And I thought that there was a lot of opportunity in the resort drive market, which, you know, had always done really well in any kind of market, frankly, you know, through 01 and 08, drive market leisure hotels always perform the best in any asset class of hotels from a RevPAR perspective. And I started Wilder Hotels in June of 2016. And the idea was because in 16, RevPAR was at peak peak and there was no good pricing of urban or it was all about urban at that point in 16. So I thought that there was opportunity to go look for like what I call like surf lodge assets, you know, where drive market, heavy leisure, you know, could do corporate meetings and like retreats and weddings. And I thought you could buy them at a discount because everyone was looking at urban and wanted to do kind of outdoor adventurous properties. So, you know, hence Wilder Hotels. And so we've been focusing on that for the past seven and a half years now. So yeah, that's how I, how it all kind of came up, came about. There's so much to unpack there. I'm going to go back to when you're 26 and you were put in charge of the Giraffe Hotel. What most, what surprised you most when you're 26 years old, never had a GM job, and all of a sudden you're coming in to manage a very important boutique hotel before boutique hotels were even a thing or even called boutique hotels? I mean, I was definitely way in over my head at the beginning, but I relied on just hard work, tenacity. I knew revenue management really well. I knew sales. I knew rooms and F&B operations really well. And honestly, I, you know, I just, I just worked really hard and I focused on the customer. It was a very beautiful hotel. The customer service, it, it, people are extremely happy there. It was more about, you know, could we push the rates and occupancy? We were always worried, could we keep pushing? Because it wasn't really like a star set. No one was really doing what we were doing. So, you know, we just kept pushing the rates and pushing the rates to see if we could get it and not see like a decline in customer service or occupancy. 
really trying to figure out the market there because then after that, boutique hotels started exploding in New York City. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of distribution. It was either called us, or you booked on our website. And so I, I think I relied heavily on my experience, corporate experience, to be honest, you know, it, it bringing organization to a, a very wild west situation. And a lot of mistakes, like just making trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, making, you know, learn from mistakes. And, you know, my boss, the owner was extremely supportive and the product was that good that it made it a lot easier when the product's really good and location was phenomenal. So you could kind of make mistakes and, you know, everyone still loved you, you know? How do you think about rate ceiling in a market where you don't have a lot of direct competition. Like there weren't a lot of boutique hotels in that location in New York City. You operate today, kind of these regional resorts where there's probably not a lo- lot of competition around you. How do you think about the rate ceiling in those kind of contexts? Yeah, I mean, you really look at year over year and you, you, you really try to push the rates and, and, and the market tells you pretty fast, you know, like it just stops booking. You know, you look at compression weekends and, you know, I find that Saturday nights in in leisure markets is the night where there's compression, but then you push the rates up too much and then people don't want to come for two nights and you lose the Friday occupancy. And so I, I think it's always a struggle to like that Friday, Saturday differential in rate, you know, I, I'd rather have people come stay for two nights and not and, and try to get the occupancy higher on Friday then just peak out on Saturday ADR because that, you know, that's basic revenue management, right? It's like, so I think you, you have to look at your trip advisor comments. You have to look at, talk to the staff and the value, the value perception is important because you got to play the long game. You know, if, if the value is not there, pushing the rates is not going to help you long-term. When you were at the Roger and had to basically completely transform the hotel, take revenue from 10 million to 20 million, double it, what were the key insights you learned in doing that? Because I think a lot of people try and do it, but it's very hard to do on that level. Yeah, it it was a great acquisition because the location was so good and it was so underperforming. And it had it was full of OTA. It was probably like 90, 100% OTA contribution. So, you know, building a web, building the content, building a website, building the product, and then really bu- bringing in market segmentation, right? At the end of the day, sales team, you know, y- we brought on a lot of corporate business there, a lot of transient corporate business at much higher rates. And then when you have that corporate segmentation, to replace all that OTA, if you then you can find the bar business for the last 10 or 15, 20% of the room nights to fill that off. And that and that's really, it, it really comes down to market segmentation. And in the resort, in leisure resorts too, it's, you really want to try to, you're, you're not going to fill every weekend with 100% transient on every weekend. You got to find some group business in there. And you, you want to have more than one revenue stream coming in the property at, at, at all times because that's going to diversify and allow you to to maximize your revenue. So I think I think having a, a good marketing plan with a sales team, with a great website that caters to both transient and group business and corporate business is really is really how you do it, period. 
What makes for a good hotel website? Yeah, I, photography, period. You know, the, the photos don't lie. The photos can't, you can't overmarket it. It's gotta be what it actually is. If you overmarket it and it makes it look like it's better than it is, great, you'll get people there. But if, you, if, the, if it is what it is and, you, and, and the photography's great, and it's better than when people are there, the actual experience and the photography, then, then you've really done something, you know? So, you know, clear, photography is huge. And, you know, I think the color and the vibe of, of, of how it feels and the copy is important, you know, both for people to get a vibe, also on the SEO backup, you know, search, search words, obviously SEO is crucial. And, you know, you have to be thoughtful in your positioning of your brand and what you're doing. And, you know, you're, we're always trying to not be like anybody else, you know, Wilder Hotels. We really don't want to be doing what anyone else is doing. And we want that to come across in our website, you know, in our own voice. So is that market specific or is that just the brand in general, you want to try and be different from whoever you're competing against? I think the brand in general, and then then it's market specific too, for sure, because we want to embrace what what's there and what's going on there and what the story is behind that particular property, that particular area. Because we're trying to go to areas that are surprising locations, right? We're not looking to be where everyone already is. We're looking to go where no one else is. So then how important is it for you to tell the story of what people can do in those locations where they may not know what you can do or what's going on. If they're like a smaller drive to city, other than the hotel, which may be a destination of itself, how do you tell people like, here's how you can spend your day? Yeah, I mean, we have at our property uh, happenings, a click you can click on and you can see what's happening. There's a calendar of everything that's going on. And then in Instagram, which is, you know, become top marketing. We then inside 72 hours, we're then reminding people what's happening. We have tie-dye classes. We have a uh, swing dance. We have paint and sip. We have water aerobics in the pool. We like to do a lot of stuff that is not like over. It's just like kind of nostalgic, fun, basic stuff that, is easy to do and it's low impact and it's like one hour. It's like, yeah, come make a tie dye shirt, go do some water aerobics, do s'mores party from this time to this time. And, you know, we have a hatchet throwing thing. It's so well attended in Wyndham. People love throwing a hatchet, you know? So like we try to do fun, like low impact, untraditional, but slightly corny, but people love it. We have a cocktail making class that's like, learn how to make a cocktail. This is not, you know, it's just, it's it's the human interaction and it's kind of like, yeah, it's just really honest. So I think I think people love that. So we talk about it on our website, we talk about it on Instagram, we talk about when they get in. There's always a lot of stuff to do. I was having a conversation with one of our partners and we were, as the manager and co-partner, we were presenting our GM candidate for a new hotel. And... One of the partners said, well, you also interviewed this. It's like a boutique hotel, smaller, 150 rooms. One of the other partners said, you also interviewed this person that was a GM of a 400 room 
you know, Marriott or Weston. It was one of those type of hotels in a big urban environment. Why didn't they kind of get into the final push? And I said, well, that type of GM typically is very different from a boutique lifestyle GM. Part of the reason is not just understanding the business, but it's the programming and the curation element. So in your properties, how much of that falls on the GM as almost like 100%, kind of a camp counselor? 100%. So can you talk yeah. about like how yeah. you inspire and create that culture for them to do it? I just say you got to have a lot of stuff going on at all the time, figure it out. Like, <laughs> and I have two tremendous uh, general managers who are resourceful, get it done, action-oriented people. And I think they enjoy doing it. I see, I, they see the return, they see the, they see the guest satisfaction it creates at the property. And so they're inspired, I think. And they also like the community of like making connections with, you know, these musicians, these, you know, yoga people, it's fun for them, you know? And I think that they see that it works and that it's a low cost. And that the ROI is like through the roof, right? Through the roof. And I would tell any hotelier, like, go hire a local banjo guy for 150 bucks and give him a beer and a burger and have him play. Or like, go hire a, you know, a, a Pilates instructor and see if they'll do water aerobics in your pool. Like do something and, and pay him a hundred bucks and see 20 guests show up and bring their husbands who are like hung over from the night before. And all of a sudden husbands are doing water aerobics in your pool. They would never do it and have the best time in their life. And then they're all telling you how much they love their, your hotel and they're coming back because that, that unique weird experience they just had that they would never normally do. And then the GMs are like, wow, this works and it's cheap and I can do it and I can put on my marketing and it's like, boom. And so they just, it, yeah, that's how, it, how it happens. Is it important to bring people from the local community, like guests into the restaurant and into these activities? Or does the hotel have enough business where you don't really need to make that a part of the deal? Yeah, no, I like the high-low vibe of Wilder Hotels. And I like that we're super come as you are. I, I like, I have a saying like, I want a billionaire next to a working man next to a a local next to a policeman next to, you know, all hanging out in the same place. Right. And you don't know who's who, and that's what we want. So I think that we try to create an environment that makes everyone very comfortable. We're not, everyone asks me, who's your market? Markets, everybody, everybody. Why would I want to alienate a market? You know, I want everyone to feel comfortable. So you were there at the start of this whole boutique lifestyle movement. Then you did ACE, which was like a completely new transition point. I remember I took my dad to the ACE hotel. I'm like, you got to see this thing. It's crazy. Like the toilet paper holders are these little like old pipes that they just, you know, stuck out of the wall and put the toilet paper on. And then you were there with, with Brian and Brad, who you called geniuses at the start of proper, which I think is kind of another iteration of where boutique lifestyle design oriented hotels have gone. Talk to me about how they've transitioned over the years and what's changed through all those points and where we are now. My harsh 
view of it is that there's a lot of fakers out there trying to do it, you know? So there's very few true independent boutique hoteliers out there really doing it. There's a lot of institutional capital. There's a lot of brands with soft brands trying to do it. And I can walk into any hotel and tell in a second if there's like, if it's a true independent hotel. And so I think if you separate what I call like a watered down corporate boutique hotel, there's a ton of that. They're all doing kind of the same stuff. A lot of it's over-designed. A lot of it is been there, done that, seen that. And then there's what I call like real independent hotels where you could see the soul. You could see there's like one or two people who are really behind it, like entrepreneurial people. And that and that is very kind of, you, you could feel the soul of the property. You just know. And that can't be faked. And that personality of that independent hotelier comes through the GM and the staff. You just know. So I think that location is to me, the biggest thing and where you are for, you know, and, and where you choose to go really makes a statement about your brand or your, you know, you know, what's going on there and what, what the building is like. And is it a new build? I think, I think new builds are generally all institutional capital, right? It's either a read or private equity. And it's really hard for new builds to look like a true independent boutique hotel, I think. And then when you get a refurb or renovation, and if it's done well and they keep the soul, hopefully the bones are good. Those are the ones that I like the most usually. It's it's rare that I see a new build that I'm like, oh, love this property, right? There are some, but it's 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 more rare. I'm gonna go stay at Austin proper and that's a new build, but everyone seems to think that's pretty amazing. So I'm excited to see how they're able to blend the sense of place and soul in a glass box. Yeah, one of the one of the few people doing it well on new builds. Where do you think most people, institutional capital, who you've worked with, you've worked for, where do most of those folks mess up in their execution of a soft branded hotel or a lifestyle hotel? I mean, you know, I can feel it, you can feel it. But what do you think the actual things are if you had to go fix one of those that you would need to start with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think lobby, F&B, rooms, it's usually like one of the big flags, one of their soft brands that just, you just know it's like basically watered down stuff. And, you know, you really, you just feel it in the way that when you walk in the doors between the lobby and the F&B, how that's working, mostly in urban. I just think that it's, it's a lot, I hate to say it, but it's a lot about the vibe and like the choice of materials. Is it real materials? Is it all engineered? Is it really colorful? Is it, does it feel like it's been there? I mean, I think that's the problem is it just feels a lot like boutique hotels are just trying too hard, trying to be cool. And I just think, is it? going to look good in five to 10 years. Like it's always been there. If I walk into the Bowery hotel tomorrow in New York, it's going to look as awesome as it did when it opened. And it will look 10 years from now as awesome as it did when it opened 20 years ago. And it's never going to need a refresh unless the carpet, you know, got spilled and stained. Right. And so that's the kind of hotel that I want to go there where you could feel like, like it's meant to be here. It's an instant classic 
And, you know, there's a lot of properties like that. You know, Sean McPherson is a guy that like, he just, he just gets it. Right. And so it's similar to like a Keith McNally restaurant. You go there and you just like, wow, that it just, it feels like it's been here. I feel like I'm in Paris or it's just like real. Whereas if you go to like some soft brand, it's like somebody in like a flagged corporate R and D made this up and it's like, this is, could be anywhere, anywhere. Right. And so I think you got to nail the sense of place. You got to nail the realness of it. When you're concepting a new hotel and you find a piece of property, what's the process you use to identify the vibe and the sense of place? And who do you hire from the beginning to help you do that? Like, does the designer come on day one? Do you do it with a branding person? Do you not do it with any of those people and come up with it yourself and then call the designer once you have this mood board that you've created? What's, what's your process? Been with the same branding firm since day one, Revolver, Vincent Ficar, great guy. And we know what, what we're, we just know what Wilder is. So we, we don't have to like think about it. It's just, we know what it's going to be. And sure, there's a process. There's a, you know, we iterate on stuff. On the design side, worked with Post Company and they, they just get it. The, I don't have to like think through it with them. We're always just trying to make it feel like it's always been there. And it, is it going to look good in 10 years? And if it doesn't feel like it's not ever been there before, if it looks like it's designed, then it's not going in. We don't want anything that looks designed. That The design is to not look like it was designed. And so if it doesn't meet that criteria, then, you know, it's, we're just trying to have a sense of place. And and like, we, 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 we're big on refurbishing and restoring. So if something's weird that's there, it looks cool, we just leave it, you know? We just embrace, I think embrace... Is, on a refurb, you just embrace what's there. And if something's like operationally bad, then you adjust, of course. In Wyndham, we needed the, the ballroom was too big. We had to like make a bigger lobby. So we made the lobby bigger and made the ballroom smaller. You know, we opened up some spaces and the kitchen was like the size of a country club and we made the kitchen smaller and we made a restaurant and a bakery. So it's like you, you look at maximizing square footage, but, and you try to do, I think kind of like, what makes pragmatic sense for the business and the designers. It's not about the designer. It's never about the designer. One of the earlier guests on the pod, John Grossman, he actually just changed his name of his company. I think to his parents or something, but he had this great saying, it was don't fight the building. And I was reminded of that. Yeah. He has great properties. He does a great job. Smart. Yeah. Embrace what's there. There's weird stuff. Keep it. It could be cool. Yeah, because, you know. Do you have any like particulars that you have to have a bar in this certain location, in this proximity of the front desk, or you need a restaurant that has access to the street, or you don't care about that? Are there any of these little details that you are going to push really hard to try and figure out in the public areas? I want event space. I want event space. I want a bar. I want a lobby. I want a restaurant. And I think more and more now I'm thinking about, you know, if the restaurant doesn't have to be open seven days, because it's just really hard to run, run a restaurant open seven days. And the demand on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays is so low. I like this idea of having a to-go or a bakery operation that's a small footprint where one or two people can run it. So that 
the guests who are staying there not on the busy peak days there's something and you know coffee to go sandwich to go beer here you know whatever so i think a nice lobby is important for to have like a sense of quiet space that's not busy and if you want to have a real conversation with somebody and also kind of like feel the soul of the property and like read a book or play chess or you know i like having a quiet space that's not a part of a loud restaurant or bar i just i just like that i just think group business is crucial you know i think if you're in a i do resorts so you know you know weekends you're gonna have transient demand right and I think that retreat business is back massive. Like, and I think people want or the business we're seeing at Wilder Hotels are is non-traditional corporate retreats. They want to sit in a circle. They want to have a bonfire. They want to go on a boat. They want to go for a hike. They 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 want to be outdoors. They they want to go swimming. They they don't want to sit in a corporate boardroom, you know. And I think, but being able to have a place that can house a meeting and then have alternative things that they could do as well is is huge. And I think wedding business is just necessary, right? Because you're not every weekend is not going to be sold out. You know, there's going to be and if there's bad weather, group wedding business really mitigates weather impact. Whereas like last weekend it was pouring in upstate New York, pouring. There was a huge storm. And if we didn't have 50, 60 group rooms with a wedding, I mean, we would have gotten killed by the weather, right? Because people didn't want to drive. And so the weatherman kills transient weekend resorts, like kills. So I like mitigating downside with group business wherever I can on weekends. And, I, and you know, there's no corporate transient business at the resorts I go. There's zero. Like, Google doesn't live next door, you know? So, so, so uh, I would like Google to come and do an event and check in Tuesday out, Thursday or Friday. So I want to have space that Google wants to come to. I'm using them as a name, but it could be anybody, right? Because I think you need to drive demand for wherever you can. So I think, I think event space is, I, wouldn't, I would not do a hotel without event space, period. Wow. That's, that's, that's interesting to hear because I bet a lot of regional resorts or micro resorts have minimal event space, or maybe they have a lot of their event space outside. So the fact that it's so important to you, I think is really insightful. Is there anything you've changed now because corporate retreats and corporate meetings like post-pandemic are so prominent that you've added into the hotels? Meeting packages that are designed non-traditional, like go on a hike, have have s'mores late night, do morning yoga. Like that's what our meeting packages are. We try to like customize this whole experiential thing and yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what we're focused on is like outdoor adventurous re- corporate retreats. We have a rec room with like shuffleboard and Pac-Man and people do late night DJ. We do karaoke. Like that's a big deal. People love freaking karaoke. And they, they want to like let their hair down. And 
you know, get to know their coworkers because a lot of these companies are working from home. So they got to get together three, four times a year at least to like talk to each other, right? So yeah, I mean, that's that's what we're doing. It's all non-traditional. We don't, we just want to be very unique. I mean, it's working. That's all I, all I know is it's working. And the guest satisfaction from it is extremely high, extremely high. I want to talk about now a little bit about how you find these properties, because I think it's hard. Maybe you think it's easy, but how do you source these special deals that you want to invest in to build Wilder? I got lots of deals, man. Let's go do some deals. Yeah, if you got deals, deals I got capital and I can help you execute too. If we got a team, <laughs> let's go do it. Yeah, finding deals is is not that hard. I go on LoopNet. I like my secret is is find not like non-traditional brokers, residential brokers, broker who is friend of grandpa who owned the property in the family forever. who's just like doing it as a favor. And I like to find family generational assets where the family is done and they don't know what to do with it. And they're like, we want out. And there's a lot of that out there where, you know, grandpa, father, whoever patriarch starts this resort business has three or four or five kids. Kids don't want anything to do with it. And, you know, they, they don't have the wherewithal or the sophistication to want to keep putting money in it and rebranding because it, it is a ton of work, right? And if you've never rebranded and tried to then take your in, like legacy asset and invest a lot of money into it, and you don't understand how to read a star report and like how you're going to reposition this to the upper category set, it's it's not their ballywick, right? And they're better off just cashing out, taking their cash, and 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 most times, you know, the family splits it up and they go on their merry way, right? So all three of my assets have that I've done with Wilder have been that has been legacy family assets with non traditional brokers, and and when I can find the perfect storm of those two things, Jake. You're in. Well, what else matters then, John? So like you're going through the list of criteria, like key count, location. Give me your checklist of things that are important that are kind of your gating before you go into it. Drive market within four hours of a major city. Four hours. Yeah. If it's three, better. Great. I don't want it too close. You know, an hour feels like it's not far enough away, you know? Ideally, like no one else is there. And like the star set doesn't, I'm not looking for a star set. If there's a, if there's a strong star set, it's probably not my deal. That means, you know, it's oversaturated, blah, blah, blah. There's too many sophisticated operators in the market. And there's probably a sophisticated broker. And there's probably somebody already looking at the deal to leverage the price up. I don't know. So, I would say minimum 50, but you know, upwards of 150, 200 rooms, full service, existing, ideally, will do development, will do heavy, hairy, I mean, hairy, land use problems, things that scare REITs and private equity and institutional guys like, oh, no, we don't like that deal. It's, it's do this, it's do that, it's do this, it's do that. Great. I love that deal. 
Environmental problems, love it. Give it to me. So I think the hairier it is, the better. Because the institutional suits don't want to figure it out. And they're only worried about their half glass empty guys, you know? I know. A lot of, a lot oh, of, it's everything that's going to go wrong. It's all going to go wrong. Okay. I don't look at it that way. How have you thought about raising capital for deals so that you're able to do the deals that you want to do? Because a lot of the institutional capital might not be able to do the deals that you want to do. They might buy them from you once you put in all the work. But how do you align the capital with your vision? It's really hard. You got to kiss a lot of frogs. There's a lot of frogs out there. You kiss them, you figure out who has the wherewithal to do the deal. It becomes easier as you're more known and you can you have like obviously proven that you've been able to make money, you know? So it's easier to find capital now than it was when I was first started, for sure. Obviously the debt markets right now are a total disaster. So that is uh in, you know, I think if you could take stuff down with equity and place the debt later, you have more patient capital or people who get the long-term play and they realize the asset's great. They're willing to take a hit on kind of like year one, year two returns, knowing that they're going to refi, right? You need people who understand that, who are patient, who don't need to like start making 8% pref day one, right? So it's the profile of the investor and you know, finding good capital partners is really hard. It's really hard. It's hard. And have you ever tried, you know, creative structures with sellers where you're doing seller financing or things like that? I've never done it. I've talked about it on acquisition deals. Usually the the deals I want to do now are larger. So it usually won't work because it's too much paper. So I think that, you know, I'm trying to do 20 to 30 to 40 to $50 million deals now. So it's harder. And I think you just got to bring a lot more equity to the table and you got to underwrite. It's got to underwrite year one and two with, I mean, it comes down to underwriting, right? And if you underwrite really expensive debt and you can make it work with a heavy interest reserve, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's about basis, Jake, you know, is the basis low? If it's a low basis with huge upside, you go forward, right? But if it's really tight, you're one and two, it's the, you know, the, the underwrite is not that exciting, then you pass because it's not worth your time. As I'm understanding your strategy though, everything should almost have a low basis because you're focused on markets that a lot of other people aren't interested in. There, There's no star report even available. So that's, sounds like like that's the first intro to any of your deals is an incredible entry point where you have a lot of room to make mistakes. Replacement costs, way below replacement costs. Way below. Yes. And the reno has got to be fast so you can get operating quickly, right? It can't be too... I love a cosmetic remo where the bones are good. I don't have to do a lot of heavy, you know, permitting. And it's like, hardwood floors, paint, new bathroom, FF&E, and like the bones are great, get out of the way. Like, like I like them just getting out of the way of a property because it's great. So I think the longer it takes, the more complicated it is on the permitting, entitlement, whatever, you know, the more I'm like, eh. 
But if I can get in and get out and get open and start rebranding and start cash flowing, I like that. I want to talk a little bit more about the competitive set because if if no one else is there, are you running a comp set in like a four hour radius of whatever city you're competing against? So like, you know, you might be competing against property that's eight hours from you, but four hours from where everyone else is coming from. Yeah, for example, in Wyndham, Scribner's had been there, had been killing it, doing great. They don't report, but we we know what they're doing. We know how well they're doing. In Tillman Island, Perry Cabin, in a Perry Cabin's down the street, we know how well they're doing. We see what they're charging on their rates. It's very obvious, okay? So, I mean, we make some very educated assumptions to to know that it's going to work. You could run a star set for like similar properties. It's always, it's kind of hit or miss. But I think you really need one good comp that's within an hour's drive that is doing it. And you just go there and you look at the website and you talk to the people and you stay there and you're like, yeah, okay. You know? That's it. Let's do a deal. We got to do it. (laughs) Why are you focusing on deals that are 20, 30, 40, 50 million? What have you learned having done deals bigger and smaller than that? 30 rooms or 300, it's a ton of work, right? If I'm a sliver equity promote player, the management fees in year one and two are not that high, right? And it's like, it's so much work. It's so much work. It's nonstop. It's like having a baby, you know, and it's like, you don't have a wife. It's like, you're just, it's, it's like, you don't have a nanny. It's like, 24 7, 365. You're dealing with snowstorms and rainstorms and pandemics. It's like, it better be worth it, right? If it's not worth it, why do it? It's just too much work. So, how do you make it work? You're based in California. Your properties today are on the East Coast. How do you manage them? How do you make it work? And how do you think about looking at other properties that aren't in California, maybe? Although, California, what isn't for the like high cost of labor and properties would have some amazing opportunities for you. Yeah. California's brutal. I am from upstate New York. I'm from the East Coast. All my family's back there. You know, the deal, I go to where the deal is. If the deal's amazing, you gotta do the deal. You know, if those two deals that I have on the East Coast are amazing deals, right? So they're amazing wilders, they're iconic properties, they they were worth it, you know? They're worth the pain. So you gotta go to where the, you gotta be flexible to where the deal is. I would love to find a deal in Florida, it's so hard. Everything's priced so high, it's just really hard to find something worth doing in Florida. I would love to do something in the mountains in the West Coast, I would love to do something, I, I'll go to 50 states, it doesn't matter where the deal is. I'd like there to be an airport close by that I could fly to direct. I, that's my thing. I don't want to have to connect flights. I'll fly and drive an hour or two, two and a half, no problem. I don't want to have to connect flights. Okay. I get it. I think that makes sense. We have a thing on our management company where we have to be able to fly direct from Florida or Philadelphia because it is so intensive. With that, then, how often are you visiting your properties and 
what's your communication and management style for your team at the properties? I drive them crazy. So well, that's how you know you learned, right? When you were 26, the owner yeah. drove you crazy, right? Yeah, no, I I empower them a lot. I mean, I empower them. I hold them accountable. I go to Wyndham more than Tillman Island right now just because Wyndham is so ramping up and Tillman is so much more stabilized. I was there both last week at both properties. I'm going back to Wyndham now. We're 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 really trying to ramp to two year, year two in Wyndham. So it's a big heavy lift to go from year one to year two. We're trying to grow the revenue significantly. The business is booming. So I'm I'm way more involved day to day in Wyndham. Tillman is doing really well and it's talk to the GM daily, you know, emails, you know, of course, but I'd rather, I mean, we text and call all the time. I mean, we're looking at, I'm looking at the business. I see every expense. I see every revenue. Is, is everyone at work today or any, or, do you have any positions open, right? Do you have open positions, right? Which department is strong? Which department's weak? What is the GM spending their time on? Is the GM spending their time in triage because of whatever reason, you know? And I think you, you're you always trying to get every department working. And most importantly, the sales and marketing department has to be working the best. So I think that's where I'm looking at is, is which department is strongest, which department is weakest. And then you attack the weak department to get it to make it stronger, right? And you're obviously looking at the P&L trends. And we run our properties pretty lean. And there's not a lot of fat. The general manager, I don't care any hotel, the general manager is the most important person in the hotel, period, end of story, right? If you have a good GM who's highly engaged, who cares, who's who's able to recruit and effectuate the sales and the staffing situation, you're going to be successful. If you don't have a strong GM, I don't care how good your hotel is, you are not nearly going to be successful. What are the key characteristics and traits of a strong GM? You've been one, you've seen them all. They have to have a strong foundation of time management. You know, they're getting pulled in a lot of directions. And do they have a pulse on every single day? And who's performing and not performing? They have to be able to coach. They got to be a great coach, right? They got to be a great recruiter. And if they're a great recruiter and a great coach, they're putting out less fires. GMs that have a lot of open positions, who can't recruit, they're always putting out fires. They're all everyone, they're always complaining about staffing situations, right? You know, can't find staff, blah, blah, blah. Great GMs find staff. Great GMs keep staff. Great GMs tell owners we gotta pay this person. We, we gotta like, I don't care what the freaking budget is, this person's worth it, right? They fight for what is good for the hotel. And they drive revenue because revenue solves all problems. And they hire and get other managers in their departments to be ride or die with them. You know, I think that's really is like finding ride or die people who want to be a part of that property, who want to do it. Because there's going to be a lot of the hard times, you know, and ride or die, people can overcome adverse adversity is the number one thing that GMs can do to recruit people because there's a lot of people who just want to collect a paycheck and don't want to actually work. I just want to like, like I want balance in my life. Okay. Well, you know, maybe you should have become gone to the U S mail 
or, or the government, right? Why did you sign up for hospitality? Like, this is not balance, okay? We, we try to provide that and give two days off and vacations and benefits, but like, you know, you're doing it because you love it and you think it's a great career. Or you could go work for Four Seasons or Marriott hotels, right? And that's that's a different kind of situation. But it's not going to be independent boutique hotels that are trying to do ambitious things, right? I, that's that's my opinion. It's interesting. I'm always surprised sometimes when I hear people leaving our company that I liked and I thought were really strong, and that go to a different company because I think what's unique to some extent about us because we're still small compared to a lot and you is that GM, that leader has an interaction daily with the owner of the property or weekly or monthly with the owner of the property. And at most of these hotel companies, they're not going to talk to the owner except for once a year and maybe at that point. Whereas, you know, you might be able to put that person on an actual career path as opposed to just talking points. And I think people in hospitality in leadership roles sometimes make a lot of bad decisions and go work at the wrong place that doesn't align with their career ambitions, or at least what I thought they were. Yeah, I think at, at our company, I think people get a lot of opportunity faster. They have a chance to like really move up. They get a lot of responsibility. They get to make mistakes and learn from it. And they're in the real world and they get real world experience. And I think that there's a lot of gratification from like doing it in the real world and like really, really doing something great as opposed to a larger entity that it doesn't necessarily matter if they're there or not, but if they're at, if they're not at our hotel that day, you know, things are going to fall apart, you know, and that the wedding isn't going to happen. The corporate retreat isn't going to happen. That big VIP, that press piece isn't going to happen. And so those are very meaningful moments in the business and in their career. And I think that's why a lot of people like working at our companies because they get a lot of responsibility and they get the gratification of, doing real world things that matter. Looking back at the three deals that you've done, what are some of the mistakes that that you made that you're now going to correct going into the future? Whew. Yeah, I won't do another hotel in Northern California. I won't do one. I just think the science of fires and the over-regulatory, you know, pandemic stuff was... It, it was just devastating in terms of, you know, forced shutdowns. I think the labor market in Northern California is really rough. And I think that the science is not on Northern California's side as it comes to fires and the summertime, you know? So I think geographically, I'm going to be very smart about, I think, what the weather impacts and how, you know, what's happening how hot are the summers, how cold are the winters, and what is the transportation to this property? Because I'm doing wilder hotels, right? These places are in the middle of nowhere or in weird places, right? Is there a labor market that's legit? Is there black swan events that are going to really impact us negatively? I'm going to think long and hard about that. And I think 
who you take capital from is crucial and finding the right partnership structures that goals are aligned long-term so that when the boat rocks, you know, everyone's rocking together as opposed to like their own personal interests. What about on the construction and renovation side? What are the mistakes people make a lot and what mistakes have you made? I think when you do hardwood floors, you got to really make sure there's four coats of matte poly on there, you know, because you don't want to be refinishing hard floors. It's like a must have. I'll never do, I hate carpet. I won't do carpet ever. Like, and I will never do an engineered floor. Like, I don't care how good it looks. I'll never do engineered floor. I want a real hardwood floor and they're going to get beat up and that's got to be part of the look. But I think just making sure there's enough coats so that when it gets wet and you have to constantly clean it, it's not, it's able to withhold. I'd say HVAC, you got to be really smart with like PTAC units and but like, that's a big decision. You don't want to go cheap. You don't want to get that wrong. You really want to get that right. Does that mean not doing PTAC units or figuring out a way to cover them up? No, I think like, you know, there's, there's HPAC, there's different variations of it. I get away with a lot of stuff. Like I don't mind PTAC units. I think they're great. Like they're inexpensive. Like people are like, oh, PTAC, it sucks. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. You know, I, I just, you just want to make sure you buy the right unit and that it's going to last and you have a warranty and, and, and like the engineering of it with the, with the unit is correct installation for exhaust and stuff. We've had issues where it's just not installed. Right. But you can nail the HVAC in the floors, obviously plumbing, the water pressure, those are issues that you want to nail. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes it's, you don't want to under, I think a lot of times I'm driving to make sure we're not spending too much money and we're keeping the basis low, but actually the right thing is to actually increase the cap stack and do everything really right. You know, being too resourceful can be not as smart, you know, and you always need more money than you think. So if the, if the basis is X, the contingency is never big enough at never. So, so I, I'd say that is my biggest mistake is that not underwriting enough contingency or oh shit moments. And I think that's my biggest mistake. I want to talk about the food and beverage side a little bit because your focus has been on full service hotels. We talked about your strategy with opening and closing, but like what are the key components of a food and beverage experience that you're looking for in your existing properties or ones that you're on the hunt for? Yeah, so Tickler's in, in Tillman Island is a crab shack and it's comfort food. People want crabs, oysters, fried chicken, mashed potatoes, stewed tomatoes. They want a good cocktail. We pack it, we have picnic tables. I, I, I'm a big believer in picnic tables. I think picnic tables are dope. You know, we paint them every year. They just, they get beat up and, and paint solves all problems, Jake. You just paint the shit out of them, you know? And I'm a big fan of picnic tables. I'm a big fan of outdoor dining. I think outdoor dining is amazing. Uh, you know, comfort food, like not overpricing it, keeping it simple, not trying to be this gastro Michelin star, blah, blah, blah. I just, I think most restaurants are fussy. They're bougie. They're trying too hard. 
I just, there's very, I, I like a restaurant that's honest, you know? So Babblers and Wyndham, it's like cheers. You know what I mean? It's loud. It's comfort food. Sure, it's got healthy items, but you need chicken wings. You need ribs. You need a good burger. And you need a solid cocktail program and a long bar. You can't have some like too skinny, weak bar that's too small. You want people to rub elbows. You want the bar scene lively. I mean, I'm just a big fan of a strong, sturdy, classic, iconic mahogany wood bar. It's like, how can you go wrong? And a great cocktail program. And we're, we're super cocktail heavy. We definitely have wine and beer. I'd say our wine lists are, you know, we're not trying to win awards with a wine list. We're not trying to carry a huge inventory. We're serving a lot of cocktails. And outdoor dining, outdoor dining, outdoor dining. And then event space, like our margins at our hotels and food and beverage are like 30%, you know? And sometimes the restaurant can be 10 or 15, but then we'll do events where it's like 40 or 45, you know, because we're getting site fees, we're getting open bars, we're getting weddings where they're paying 250 bucks per person. So... I like events, but I like, I mean, and then the same staff that's working the restaurant can work the events and you get some synergy there. So yeah, I like comfort food. I like to keep it unfussy. I like to hire chefs that don't have big egos, that it's not about them. It's about the restaurant identity and what it is. And they want to make money and they're, they know how to hire people and they can run lean and they can figure it out. And yeah, that's my food and beverage strategy. You know what's underrated? Patios. Patios and like front porches are so underrated and every project should have them. And picnic tables. Wyndham has a great patio we built. It's easy. It's, it's pressure-treated wood. It's cheap. It's pressure-treated wood. And you put some tables out with umbrellas candles and lanterns at night, some music. What else do you need in life, right? And Tillman is picnic tables and a crab shack on the water with a great view. I like food and beverage that has a view, you know? Like, if you can have food and beverage that has a view, that people enjoy the ambiance of it, it's it's great. I think it's, I think, I think outdoor dining is big. Do you work with a consultant or are you doing this yourself? We're doing it ourselves. I like it. So a friend of mine, Jeff Klein, who owns the Sunset Tower Hotel and, and San Vicente Bungalows, we were doing an F&B project. And I was like, I don't know if I was complaining to him or I was saying like, this is what I want to do. And we're talking with the whole team. And he's like, you don't need to hire anyone. You don't need to listen to any chef. You know exactly what you want and what you're doing. You just need to tell them and point them in the right direction and make sure it's on point. And I think that was like some of the greatest F&B advice I've ever gotten because everyone always feels pressure to listen to chefs or experts and this, that, and the other thing. But every person's their own greatest food critic, especially if it's your vision for the property. I think that's good advice. I think at the end of the day, your, your guests at my hotels, you want to have a good experience because you're in the business of selling rooms. You want to make money doing food and beverage, which we do, but you want it to be a value add to selling rooms. 
So if your guests come in at our hotels, no matter what, they get a seat at, in the restaurant. We hold tables for them. If you're staying at our hotel and you can't get in our restaurant, that's a huge problem, right? So we got to get you in and you got to have a good experience because if you have a bad experience at the hotel restaurant, it really hurts the total overall situation, right? Whereas if the hotel is okay, but the restaurant's amazing, wow, that, you know, that, that can really help. So I think you got to be very strong about making sure that guest experience is good. So if you're breaking even in food and beverage and the experience is great and the rooms are making a lot of money, okay, hey, I can get on board with that. But, you know, you don't want to be losing money in F&B and you don't want that experience to be poor for the hotel guests because then you got a real problem. All right. I want to bring it home with talking a little bit about like your hold strategy. So are you building these hotels to hold forever? Are you looking at it on a five to seven year hold period? Talk to me about the investment horizon. Yeah, it's a great question. In my deals with my, you know, co-GP deals, everyone has two. I'm not in the business of, you know, trying to I'm trying, I'm in the business of growing the brand, right? So if someone, if I'm going to sell a hotel, I, I better get paid a lot of money. I mean, it, it needs to be really worth it. So I, I look at it as an opportunistic thing. You, if, if you're in the hotel business, at some point you are going to exit, okay, most likely. But I think I'm a long-term hold kind of guy. I like cash flow. I like management fees. I like growing a brand. So I'm not a flipper. And I just think it's also weird times right now where the hotel fundamentals are so good. And, you know, this is the longest, oh, the recession's coming. I've been hearing from all the smart people in the room, right? The smartest people in the room have been saying, the recession's coming, the recession's coming. Okay, you guys have been saying that for a year. Like the smartest economic guys in the world, right? The real smart guys. Recession's coming, right? It never came. Well, we actually, it was actually during the pandemic when they shut us all down and people weren't traveling. That was the, that was the recession. The problem that's happening now is that interest rates are so high. So who's buying deals right now? I mean, I, th- I got to believe transaction volume is at an all-time low in 2023. I mean, you you may know better than me, but it has to be. People are not as materialistic in my uneducated, you know, I don't have any data to back this up, but people seem like they're not as materialistic about what shoes they're wearing or what brand, this or that, but they're 100% focused on where they're going and that experience and what they're doing. And... um yeah, so I think the idea is to survive until 25, Jake, right? Like so that's when the interest rates are going to come down. I think that the fundamentals are going to continue to stay strong and that you know, we're going to have a good year in 24. The government's going to do what the government's going to do, the election's going to do what the election's going to do. Short of another black swan event you know, think about it. For the last, since I've been in the business, 9-11, 2008 financial crisis, 
and then the pandemic, right? If you strip those three things away, we've had a good run. Interest rates have also been 0%, which has helped fuel that. But I also think a good flushing will benefit guys like you and guys like me and gals like, you know, people that we know because there was a ton of capital that went into like goofy hospitality investments or there were unexpl- like we're still pitch deals by guys who were like, we're like, hey, you know, what's what's your experience? Like, oh, I'm like a tech founder. I'm like this. And we're like, okay, well, who's going to operate the hotel? Like I'm going to operate it or I, uh, my partner like ran 10 Airbnbs. I'm like, this is insane. And like, this is the stuff is still there, but that's like the last bit of it that's going to get flushed out which will be good for the people that actually know what they're doing. Yeah. I wish that the capital markets would change. I think that there's a big opportunity out there for lending to entrepreneurial, independent boutique hotels that are rational and make sense, you know? And, you know, there's been people like Rockbridge out there and a couple others but the, I just don't think there's enough competition. If, 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 if I was really smart and I had the expertise and time, I would, I would just send up a firm that all I did was, was lend for boutique independent hoteliers and help them, give them advice on how to be successful and just to not go through the, the hell that I've been through in the last seven years trying to find capital it shouldn't have been that hard. You know what I mean? Because the deals made total, total sense, you know? So maybe I'm wrong, but I think that, that I, I just think that that's a big, big, big opportunity right now in the market. Yeah, it's coming. One of my friends just raised a debt fund. And during COVID, we did, Dove Hill did 10 preferred equity deals. And that was our whole strategy. How can we basically leverage our network, be a strategic partner for someone, help them negotiate debt, help them negotiate the equity component, and then layer in whatever asset management value we could bring to the table, but let them do their thing. So I think that's a huge opportunity. It just seems like there should be an investment conference that's a real investment conference for boutique independent people to marry capital and operators or, 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 or sponsors, you know, it, you really need sponsors and capital in the same room that are in the independent boutique hotel world, because it doesn't really exist right now. hundred percent. And I would say, I agree with you. The private equity world is a little bit frustrating because they say one thing and do another, you know, every single time it's like, here's what I'm looking for. And then you bring them that, oh, um, I don't like uh, investing in this market right now. It's a lot of, it's a lot of excuses, which we've layered in heavily. And I know you have too, into just raising your own proprietary capital, because I actually think that's the future to our space is basically going direct to consumer and you know, whether they're your customers, but they get it and they're putting their own dollars to work. They either hate on your deal and they come back to you after you crush it and said, oh, I wish I would have done that deal to you. Or they want to beat you up on the term sheet and whittle you down so it's not even worth it. It's one of the two, right? And so, yeah, I think that there's just not enough 
there's not an event in the country where capital, good quality capital sources are sitting with good quality independent boutique hotelers. It just doesn't exist. That would be a really interesting thing. Well, maybe we'll get together a group of 30 people and do one at your hotel. Let's do it. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.